Okay. The rest of you want to turn to Joshua chapter 24. Now, this is the last chapter in the book of Joshua, though we are not done. We will come back next week and pick up Joshua chapter 23. Um, mostly because Frank and I switch because I'll be out of town doing a retreat for another church next weekend. So, while you turn there, uh, let me open us with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it this day more than yesterday. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people, Lord. Today we come to a story of renewing a covenant and coming to worship. So we pray that we would take it seriously and learn it carefully and find the one who works in us and through us. Thank you that today we're learning once again from Joshua. Help us to hear his words, understand them, believe them, and obey them, being strong and courageous, careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And so we pray, speak through Joshua 24 this Sunday morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Uh, Greg Kukul of the Apologetics Ministry, Stand to Reason, uh, says that Christians should never read a Bible verse. Fortunately, he explains. He said, if there was one bit of wisdom, one rule of thumb, one useful tip I could leave that would serve you well the rest of your life, what would it be? What is the single most important practical skill I've learned as a Christian? Here it is, never read a Bible verse. That's right, never read a Bible verse. He says, instead, always read a paragraph. The key to the meaning of any verse comes from the paragraph, not from the individual words. He says, it's the most important practical lesson uh, that I've ever learned. The thing, the single most important thing that I could teach you. And he uses as an example, Joshua 24, 15, which we read at the beginning of our prayer time uh, this morning. And he says it's not uncommon to see inspirational Christian art that quotes the verse as follows. Choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Have you ever heard that before? Probably. But there is a problem with it. And the problem comes, it's choose you this day whom you will serve, dot, dot, dot. But as for me and my house. And those dots are called an ellipsis. And those are the dots that indicate something's been left out. In fact, there should be multiple ellipses here uh, before choose this day, since that comes halfway through a sentence. So let's look at it again. Here's the complete passage, starting with verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So in context, Joshua has just relayed to the tribes of Israel who are gathered at Shechem, a message from the Lord, their covenant God, and he's given them a history lesson 
of how their forefathers served other gods until the one true God rescued them out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land. And in verse 14, he begins drawing a conclusion from what the Lord has said. Positively, they're to fear the Lord, serving him in sincerity and faithfulness. And negatively, they're to put away the false gods that your father served. And then in verse 15, Joshua provides a if-then clause. If you Israelites determine that serving the Lord is evil, then go ahead and make your choice of what kind of gods you are going to choose. You are going to serve those false gods beyond the river and in Egypt, or these false gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. And in contrast to that choice, Joshua says he and his house are going to serve the Lord. So to sum up then, when Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve, he's not talking about serving the Lord here. He's speaking rhetorically about what they should do if they've already rejected the Lord. Choose which set of false gods you want to follow. Now, does this interpretation make a major difference in how a Christian lives life? Probably not. It's more like getting the right doctrine from the wrong text. And the more we quote something like, choose this day whom you will serve out of context, the more it suggests that we memorize certain wording but fail to pay attention to the context of how the Lord has revealed his actual words to his covenant people. And that's important because when you read this chapter, it doesn't sound like it's about worship. But it is. What we have in Joshua 24 is known as a covenant renewal ceremony. And it not only lays out what God expects of us in worship, but it also lays out what God expects the consequences of worship to be in our lives. And so that's the whole context as Joshua calls the people together for a renewal of the covenant with God so that they would be established as a new nation and a new land, the promised land. And so Joshua brings them back to a familiar place, the city of Shechem, and we have been there before. So they could learn to worship through covenant reminder. That's the first blank if you're following along in the outline. Now verses one through 13, worship through covenant reminder. And that says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. 
And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come up on them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. So north of Jerusalem, you can find the remains of an ancient city that's nestled between two mountains, Mount uh, Ebal on the north and Mount Gerizim on the south. And thousands of years ago, a city was built between those two mountains. That ancient city was Shechem. Shechem appears as early as Genesis 12, for Shechem is the place where God spoke to Abraham and promised to give the land of Canaan to his offspring. And Abraham built an altar in Shechem as a reminder of God's promise. A few years later, in Genesis 35, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, stopped and buried several idols that his wife had stolen. He was on his way back to Bethel to rededicate his life to God. And part of that rededication meant getting rid of the idols. So he buried them under the oak at Shechem. Several hundred years later, Moses gathers the people of Israel on the eastern bank of the Jordan River to deliver his final message. And as he gets to the end of his message, he gives the people very specific instructions. He warns them to keep the covenant they had made with God, promising blessings if they did and curses if they didn't. And he tells them to build an altar on Mount Ebal and worship God there and write the law of God on memorial stones. Moses dies, Joshua becomes leader of the nation. He leads them across the Jordan into the battle of Jericho. And in Joshua eight, he led the people north to Shechem between the mountains. If you remember, we were in Joshua eight, we had a picture of the two mountains and building the altar and how they called, did a sort of a call and response. The people standing before the two mountains. And so he did, does as Moses commanded. He built an altar there and he copied the law of God on the memorial stones. And half the people stood before Mount Ebal and half stood before Mount Gerizim. And Joshua read the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it was written in the book of the law. So there is a pattern at work here in all these things that take place at Shechem. And the pattern is simple. Shechem is the place where the words of God were affirmed by the people of God. 
Shechem is where the words of God were affirmed by the people of God. Abraham affirmed the promise that his offspring would inherit the land. Jacob affirmed the truth that God honors those who worship him in purity. Joshua affirmed the principles that the people of Israel must keep the law of God. And so in short, Shechem is a place where over the centuries, great spiritual decisions were made. But we haven't gotten to the most famous example of all yet because that takes place here in this chapter at the end of Joshua's life. Like Moses before him, he's giving a farewell message. And Joshua 24 verse 1 says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. He summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And the message he gives has three parts, each one serving to remind uh, the people of the covenant they have with God. It's a reminder that what they had, the promised land, was given to them by the grace of God. Now you may wonder what relevance does all this have to our own day and time? And the answer goes something like this. Throughout history, the people of God have come to crucial moments in which they reaffirm their basic commitments, their covenant with God. And in those moments, they've been reminded of their foundational commitments, you might say their profession of faith, and have publicly renewed that covenant. And that's what's happened at Shechem for Joshua and the nation of Israel. It's not anything new. It is a reaffirmation of what they've already agreed to do. And the purpose of reaffirming your commitments, the purpose of renewing the covenant, is so that as you go forward, A, you don't lose your way, but B, and more important, you don't forget. And that covenant reminder, that covenant renewal, is always done in the context of worship. Why? Well, at this point, it's probably wise to remind ourselves of what a covenant is all about. Essentially, at its most basic level, a covenant is a holy promise. A covenant is an agreement that God makes with us. That says in its most essential basic form, Exodus 6, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. That is the basic covenant of the Bible. We see it again in Jeremiah 7. Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. Whatever happens when we come to worship, some statement is being made about the fact that the Lord is our God and we are his people. And renewing our covenant with God, we're reminded that God is the one who does most of the work. And he asks us to respond by doing what he says. Let's look at what Joshua says here. In verses two through four, we have the story of the patriarchs and how they had to fight idolatry and six times God describes what he did for them. He says, I took, I led, I made, I gave, I gave, I gave. Then that's followed in verses five through seven, where we have the story of the exodus in Egypt and how they had to fight idolatry. And six more times, God describes what he did for them. 
I sent, I plagued, I brought out, I brought out, I put darkness, I made the sea. Then we have verses 8 to 10, the story of the wandering in the wilderness and how they had to fight idolatry. And another six times God describes what he did for them. I brought, I gave, I destroyed, I would not listen, I blessed, I delivered. Last, we have verses 11 through 13 in the conquest of the promised land and how they still had to fight idolatry. And three more times God describes what he did for them. I gave them over, I sent the hornets, I gave you a land. And in each era, God works to deliver his people from an opponent threatening death. That's not accidental. This is what salvation looks like in every generation. It shows the basic content of God's grace. He's a redeemer of the people, a savior from sin, and a deliverer from death. And this covenant renewal, I will be your God and you shall be my people, gets repeated a dozen more times throughout scripture. He is God, we're his people, we are to know him, we are to walk in his ways, and all of that gets reaffirmed and renewed every Sunday when we come to worship. But it's not just about what God does for us. It's also about what God does through us, which brings us to worship through covenant obedience. It's not a popular word anymore, but it is a biblical word. Worship through covenant obedience, starting at verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Verse 16. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. One of the great strengths of the book of Joshua is the clear way in which it weaves God's sovereign ability and Israel's obedient activity together in the story of the conquest. From the Godward side, the faithfulness of God is the outstanding theme of the book. When God says he will do something, he sees that promise through to fulfillment. We see this not only in what God has done, but also because he speaks before he acts and his deeds confirm his word and his power and his faithfulness and thus increasing our trust in and reliance on his word. And that brings us to the other side of the story in Joshua, the need for obedience in response to the faithfulness of God. His word shows us how to walk in his steps to learn that is one of the great steps we can make in a life of discipleship. 
Joshua is a great book for demonstrating how God's word does God's work. The Spirit of God still uses the Word of God to accomplish the purposes of God. If you remember the story of Jericho, Jericho was already defeated by the penetration of the truth of what God had already done. It was already a done deal by the promise of God long before the walls fell down. God's Word is the sharpest weapon of all. And because Joshua lived by that word, he conquered. At almost every point, he sets himself to discover God's will and to do it. Simply put, to obey God's word. If we do not know his word, we cannot prove his faithfulness. If we do not know his word, we cannot prove his faithfulness. That's the hallmark of Joshua's life. It's the secret of his success, if you will. Now, if you remember, he actually needed a lot of encouragement. He wasn't Mr. Confident at the beginning. But God makes him a conqueror because of his careful obedience. That springs from a vital faith. We see that at the very beginning of the book in Joshua 1, verse 8. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. And what it teaches us is both sides of the story matter. When we receive God's word and obey it, it means we now have something to give to others. And if you think about it, of course, Joshua has his failures. He's a man of faith and obedience, except when he wasn't. And yet even those failures are overruled for good by the grace of God. Even so, we're being taught here, uh, it's clear that obedience is the way to blessing because it's the path to godliness. And not just Joshua, but the whole nation had to learn it. From the very start, it's clear that if they're gonna see amazing things done by God, there has to be this wholehearted devotion to him. All the idols have to go. God is looking for very practical, down-to-earth holiness expressed in daily obedience. And even with these two principles interacting, the faith claiming the promises of God and the obedience fulfilling the commands of God, there's no limit to what God can do, then or now, in and for his people, since we're then people going about his purpose. So how does that play out in our Sunday worship? Well, we're reminded of what God has done in Christ through the Holy Spirit. We're reminded of what God has done in and through his word. And the truth of God's word is to penetrate our hearts and minds. Uh, just as Hebrews 4 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word does God's work in our lives when we come to worship. That's why our worship services are saturated with God's word. Our call to worship, the final blessing, both come from God's word. Our responsive reading comes from God's word. Our prayers, from the opening to the closing, from the pastoral prayer to the confession of sin to the assurance of pardon, 
are all drawn from God's Word. Our songs are taken both directly and indirectly from God's Word. The lyrics either quote Scripture or refer to Scripture. The sacraments come directly from God's Word. And we gather on Sunday and we read the Word, we hear the Word, we sing the Word, we pray the Word, and in the sacraments we see, taste, and touch the Word. Our worship is Word-centered start to finish. And each Sunday we're reminded there needs to be a heartfelt response to all that Bible. When God's word is doing God's work in our lives, when we come to worship, that should be seen in our obedience to that same word. Our fellowship with the triune God is deepened as we do what he says. If you remember, that's essentially what Jesus said, John 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So obedience leads to relationship. Obedience is our side of the covenant. And our obedience to God's word and our relationship with our covenant God gets renewed every Sunday when we come to worship. So we worship through covenant renewal. We worship through covenant renewal, starting at verse uh, 19. You remember, when the conquest was over, Joshua assembles the people. They still have business with God. As great as their victories were, there's another war. One that's been raging long before any of them could remember. It's a war against God, this uh, siren song calling the hearts of every man, woman, and child to reject the Lord and serve other gods who could be tamed, who could be placated, who could be bargained with. And the men could conquer the land and then be stuck in the mud of this fight for their hearts. The Lord has promised to give this land to the children of Abraham, and now it's theirs. God has loved them with an enduring love. Joshua reminded them of the road they walked, of their history of slaves, as slaves and wanderers of the Red Sea and the Jordan, and the Lord's been faithful to them. But Joshua's also reminded them that for their part, they actually haven't been all that faithful. They had forsaken the Lord more times than any of them cared to remember. They sought after the gods of the nations, Joshua 7. When those weren't available, if you remember, they made gods of their own, Exodus 32. And now the stakes are higher than ever because they're in the land. And if Israel turns to worshiping other gods, the Lord says he's going to cut them off from the land. And so that's why Joshua challenges them with that famous verse in verse 15. If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose to stay whom you will serve. Those false gods or those false gods? My house, we serve the real God. But you remember what the people said? Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. So now Joshua answers the people. Verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. 
If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statues and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Essentially, Joshua tells the people, you're not able to serve God. You know that. God is holy. But time and time again, you forsake him from idols. Know this, when you turn away from him, he's going to judge you for it. But the people insist they would never do that. Verses 21 and 24, they essentially say, not us. We're going to serve God. We mean it. We'll follow the Lord. We'll obey his voice. We promise you can trust us. And by their words, well, they show at least that they've been listening closely to Joshua's message. By the way, it is wonderful for a preacher when people listen to what he says. When people come up and talk to me about something in the text that struck them or that they're wrestling with, I know they've listened to the text and they've heard God speak to them, and that is super encouraging. I'm sure Joshua was thrilled when they paid attention. And if I were in Joshua's place and I heard the people uh, you know, coming to him and saying, Yes, we want to obey God. You're right. I'd want to affirm that. I'd be encouraged by that. I'd be like, great. And Joshua looks at him and says, you're lying. You don't even realize it. It's easy to say you'll obey God. It is hard to do it. And I think he's warning them against trusting in themselves. When he says you're not able to, the point is, that God himself is the only one who can do it. God transforms us from the inside out. We don't reform ourselves. We don't just try harder to you know, be good and love God. We trust God to begin the work of uh, change in us from the inside out. And that's what Joshua wants them to stop and think about. When it comes to the covenant, you can't do the obedience side if you can't see what God's already done on the faithfulness side. So Joshua tells the people, set up another memorial stone. Only this one isn't a testimony to the faithfulness of God. This is the seventh and last memorial stone in the book of Joshua. This one is meant to stand as a witness against them if they abandon their promise. End of verse 27, lest you deal falsely with your God. So they set up the memorial stone. You remember there were some major ones 
Uh, at the beginning of the book, when they crossed the Jordan River, they set up memorial stones. And in Joshua 8, they set up memorial uh, stone as a witness to the covenant. And now they set up a memorial stone at the end of the book. Since they're at the same place doing the same thing, um, some commentators think they're actually using the same stone as in Joshua 8. And on that stone is written the law, which they have now promised twice to obey. Why so many memorial stones? Because we tend to forget. And for believers today, it's not a stone in Shechem that attests to the covenant, but the cross of Christ. Every time we look to the cross, it testifies of God's faithfulness. Why do we have the Lord's Supper every month? Because we tend to forget. We need to be reminded of the covenant. We need to be reminded to obey God's word. We need to be reminded that we have to trust God in order to obey him. That's the point of Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, that's what he's done, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. That's what he's doing in and through us. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's why we're doing it. So what are we doing when we gather every Sunday when we come to worship? What are we doing even more specifically when we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper? We're reminded that God has already done the hard part. That's what Hebrews 13 is all about. It's a prayer, a benediction, a blessing that describes the premise on which the prayer rests. And the key is the phrase, the blood of the eternal covenant. The blood, of course, is the blood of Christ. The covenant is the promise God made to call his people to himself and to give them forgiveness of sins. And it's eternal because the fulfillment of the promises rests on God alone. That is, the eternal covenant means that God is under obligation to fulfill his promises. He has said what he will do, and the covenant means he'll do it. The fact that it's eternal means its benefits last forever. Let me put it this way. When Jesus died on the cross, his blood established the eternal covenant. His blood made it possible for us to have a new heart and forgiveness of sins. Jeremiah 31. That's the promise God made to his people. It's a promise guaranteed by the blood for a people purchased by the blood. And now the blessings of the covenant are available to all who trust him. That's what I meant when I said God's already done the hard part. He sent his son. His son shed his blood. God raised him from the dead. He's now exalted in heaven. Now we have peace with God. And he's our shepherd and we are his sheep. Whatever else he asks us to do cannot be as hard as what he's already done. You think it's hard to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Try rising from the dead. It would be a terrible mistake to view the covenant as something we have to do all by ourselves. Everything we have to do rests on what the Lord Jesus has already done. And everyone who runs this race, this life of obedience to God's word, lives in covenant with God, gathers 
every Sunday when we come to worship so that we can be reminded. Hebrews 12, 2, we've already read this passage. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Joshua is right. We can't do it on our own. We're not able to. We have to look to Jesus. He can do it by the blood of the eternal covenant, equipping us with everything good that you may do his will. And when we run this race with endurance, Hebrews says we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And Joshua ends his book with the same reminder. We worship with covenant witnesses. Verses 29 through 33. We worship with covenant witnesses. He says, After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. So after the covenant is renewed in verses 1 through 28, we find four witnesses to the covenant. But strikingly, each witness is very weak or very old. Each dies as Joshua and Eliezer or they're going to die as the second generation of Israel, or they've already died like Joseph. And when Joshua assembles the people of Israel, he begins by reminding them of their history. Remember what he said at the beginning? Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the river. He names the father of Abraham. He says, then I took your father Abraham, and he goes on and on. Verse six, I brought your fathers out of Egypt. The identification of your fathers carries the idea that God's history with Israel is our history. Paul does this in 1 Corinthians when he identifies all the non-Jews with the fathers of Israel. So God is bringing other nations and other generations into his covenant. And so just as Joshua is teaching the Israelites at Shechem to see the works of God at the Red Sea, claim them as their own. So we should read the whole Bible as written for us. Israel's story is our story. Israel's Messiah is our Messiah. We shouldn't make the mistake of talking about what God did for them, Israel, as if it's somebody else's story. Joshua 24 teaches us to read history and find our identity in what God has done in the past and continues to do for his people today and we need to know what has happened in the past is for us too. 
And Joshua closes with these notes of faithful service. But there is a red sky in the morning alerting the reader to take warning. Because what happens next is the book of Judges. And so we see the result of these people whose covenant faithfulness is weak at best. And so even as these verses close the book in a positive light, that light is fading. And stresses the overall weakness of this covenant renewal ceremony. And the need for a greater Israel, a greater Joshua, a greater servant of the Lord. And so the book, as it began, so it ends. Their hearts longed for rest. And God gave it. Their home. They can't fathom taking the Lord's mercy and kindness for granted. But Joshua's warning is clear. Their peace depends on their ability to follow the Lord and serve him only. Their place of rest is tenuous at best. It can be lost easily. Joshua has led the people into the promised land, but their security there now depends on keeping the covenant by being obedient. If they tip either way towards godlessness or towards the worship of other gods, the Lord's going to cut them off from the land. And there's only so much Joshua can do for them. He can warn them. He can remind them of their past history with idolatry. He can take them through the stories, as he did here, of those who had gone before, who had, without exception, at one point or the other, embraced the gods of neighboring countries. He could implore them, threaten them, pray over them, appeal. He could pound his fist on the pulpit. He could plead from his knees. But there's one thing Joshua can't do for them. He could not make them holy. He could warn them of their tendency to sin, but he couldn't take it from them. He could predict their coming guilt, but he couldn't remove it. He could lead the sons of Israel to consider their place in the world, but he couldn't lead them to glory. In all of Scripture, there's only one who can. There's only one who fully obeyed God's commands to Joshua. And we learn once more why Joshua's covenant renewal was good, but it wasn't good enough. It's a faithful shadow of the substance we find in Christ. It means that we should see how God intends for this covenant renewal ceremony in Joshua 24 to point us to Jesus. In Joshua, we find throughout the book, covenant is made by means of sacrifice, by a mediator, by a sanctuary. Christ fulfills all those things. Only Jesus has shown utter obedience to the Father. Only he has fully kept the book of the law, not turning aside from it to the left or the right, but meditating on it day or night. It is his obedience that enables him to bring God's people into Sabbath rest, as Hebrews says. Only Jesus is the true and better Joshua. Always faithful, always obedient, always able to bring God's people into a new promised land. And we gather every Sunday when we come to worship in order to make the covenant declaration that Jesus is Lord. The profession of faith that we make as his servants to acknowledge and obey him alone as the supreme authority over every aspect of our life. Worship is the principal means through which this covenant is proclaimed and renewed and obeyed. 
and it's proclaimed, renewed, and obeyed by a people who keep covenant with Christ their King. So let's pray that we're faithful. Faithful to keep that covenant. Faithful to gather in worship. And most of all, faithful to the true and better Joshua, our Lord and King Jesus Christ. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that now. And after a little while, I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Father in heaven, long ago you wrested Abraham from the grip of idolatry, delivered your people at the Red Sea and preserved them in the wilderness. You reversed the curses of Balak and issued blessings through Balaam. You gave your people a home they did not build and food they did not earn. Surely there is no one like you. Surely there is no one who saves as you save. And now in these latter days you have done even more. You have taken us from our idolatry, delivered your people at Calvary, and continue to preserve us in the wilderness of this world. When our accuser would curse us, you bless us. It is because of you alone that we're now destined for a home that is not our making, and we will be welcomed at a feast that you yourself will spread. Surely there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. Surely there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so as we count your blessings, help us, Lord, to serve you in sincerity and in faithfulness. Help us to be able to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Help us never to, falsely, uh, to deal falsely with you as you are so true to us. Help us to do what is right in your sight. And as we recall our salvation and your sustaining hand, teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word and draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.